Welcome to another episode of Inside the Lens podcast. Uh, in this one, episode six, I talked to Martin Bailey, who is a phenomenal photographer, an excellent human being, uh, and, uh, and an all-around nice guy. He is also a, an avid printer. He's enthusiastic about it. He's incredibly knowledgeable uh, about printing and uh, all of the aspects of getting the right color, choosing the right materials. And so we have a great discussion about all of those things uh, over the next hour. Enjoy. I'm sitting down today with uh, with a friend and colleague and a fellow uh, X-Ride Colorado here, Martin Bailey. And uh, Martin, you uh, you and I uh, go back quite a ways. We both uh, uh, guest host on uh, TWIP and you've had me conveniently on your podcast in the past uh, to talk about uh, printing and all sorts of geekery. It was a blast. <laughs> you do so many fun things, uh, photographically speaking, and we're going to touch on that a lot today. Uh, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Don. It's great to be here. Congratulations on getting your own podcasts kicked off. Or, Thank you. Know, you. Well, by the oh. time people listen to this, at least it will be. Yes, yes. Well, it's funny because I've had this idea in the works for for way too long. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, it's going to be interesting to see how I can fill up the weeks because uh, this is a very technical and very geeky podcast. Yeah. But at the same time, how many of those topics are there? So yeah. <laughs> uh, thankfully, we can dive deeply into many different directions in them. And uh, we're here, I think, uh, well, who knows where the conversation is going to go, but I'm intending to talk about printing. Uh, and I know very few photographers actually print their own work anymore. And so when mm. I was trying to think of somebody that actually did uh, and, uh, and kind of enjoys that side of the art form, uh, your name was the first name that came to mind. Um, oh, thanks. How long have you been printing? Um... Mm, probably my first inkjet printer, and and this is I'm not talking about fine art printing at this point, but my first inkjet printer was probably uh, two no one thousand not not one thousand nineteen ninety four <laughs> or five, um, and I did print a few photographs back then, but the the technology wasn't really allowing us to print really true beautiful photographic prints. It was it was not it was not, nothing like it is now um i got my first printer that could actually make um i think it was a3 plus so 13 by 19 got that in um will have been about 2002 i think um so 14 years ago when i started making fine art prints um but i i got my first uh, large format printer which really took it to the next level um exactly six years ago and it's sitting behind me broken at the moment. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. I, well, I can see it. That looks like a Canon uh, Image Pro Graph, probably by the size, like a 6000 series. It's uh, 6350, exactly. Right. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it was the current model six years ago when I bought it. Um, but it's, I, I've been, I was testing. I started to look into using a rip for my printing, just really because I want to know more about rips. Okay, well, um, what is a rip? Well, it's, it's <laughs> basically, the, I mean, I'm like, I've only just started looking into it and the, pr and the printer broke as I, as I sent the first print to it. Um, but I've been using a, uh, a piece of software, software for the Mac called Color Burst Overdrive. And it really, what it does, I mean, it, it takes the profile that I'm using and you can either drop images into the, once it's set up with your borders and everything, uh, I can either drop the 
photos directly into a hot folder, just export them from Lightroom or whatever I'm working in, drop the image into a, a, into a drop folder, and it will just th throw it straight at the printer in literally less than, I don't know, three or four seconds. And it just makes the whole thing very, very um, efficient. And so it's really, it's more for, um, for people that say, if I'm working in a printing house and I need to, I've, I want to send my, I've got say, multiple people working, preparing prints, sending them to printers. You can just do it much more efficiently. And I, I'm not sure at this point, I haven't actually evaluated the results. I don't know if there's any difference in the quality because I've always been happy with the quality of the prints that I'm getting from Lightroom. Um, so I don't know at this point if it's going to improve the quality, but it probably is going to improve the efi the efficiency. Yeah, well, and I know that's one of the main reasons why a lot of larger print houses use a RIP, or as we should explain uh, what the acronym stands for, a raster image processor. Yeah. Um, that takes the actual pixel data of the image and processes that into uh, information on which inks should go exactly where that pixel would otherwise be and how you can translate uh, an image that is not necessarily the same uh, pixels per inch as the dots per inch in the printer. It's got to do a lot of math and a lot of calculations to figure all of this out. Mm. Um, especially, you know, the, the, the printer that, that uh, you and I both have, Martin, it's, a, it's got 12 ink tanks. Right. And with that, that with that many choices for which color, it's not like you've got a combination of red, green, and blue. Mm. Um, interestingly, those are three of the colored inks, but you can't mix them the same way uh, on a print as you would to emit from a screen. It's entirely different right, technology, right. right? Plus it's got the cyan, magenta, yellow, magenta, and black, and all of the other the colors CMYK, as well. CMYK, so cyan, magenta, yellow, black, uh, and RGB. So uh, then we're up to seven there. And then yeah. you've got usually a photo black, which is a, a different quality of black, typically for glossy prints. Mm. Uh, then you've got a gray, a photo gray, a photo cyan, and a photo magenta. Exactly. And, and that, that brings you all the way up to 12. Yeah. Uh, and some of them will even have like um, uh, a, a an, an gloss yeah. Yeah, that, that yeah. kind of goes on top. Yeah. Uh, because one of the issues is, let's say you've got some uh, heavy ink content in one part of your image, but a light ink content in the right. other part. Right. Well, then the heavy ink content will take on the gloss of the ink. The light ink content will take on the gloss or the matte of the paper. And mm. if you look at it on extreme angles, you will see a slight difference between the two. Mm. Uh, and the so sometimes, yeah, uh, well, a bronzing is a shifting of the color, I think, uh, if I'm it? not mistaken. I thought, it, I thought it, was the, it was to do with the reflectivity as well. But uh, uh, anyhow, you're, we're, you're we're probably, throwing out all sorts right. of crazy, <laughs> crazy terms here. And it, it's funny because these rabbit holes go, uh, go way deep. But mm. I want to dial it back, Martin, to your first yeah. experiences with printing. Okay. Because when I was, uh, you know, just digging through old, you know, family photo albums and what have you, uh, you've got the old, uh, you know, stuff made from like optically exposed negatives and, and those old black and white prints. Uh, which actually scan really, really well, uh, mm. especially the smaller ones. The, the the DPI, the resolution of those prints is far and above uh, sometimes what we can even do digitally today. Mm. And then we get into like this wasteland uh, <laughs> of prints that were produced in that era. You, you said like mid 90s to, you know, maybe even the early 2000s where the printing technology digitally was just so bad. Mm. And there's like, you know, we had a desktop printer and my dad was an early adopter of digital photography and he thought it was just the cat's meow <laughs> to take a picture and then print it digitally. 
those were so terrible. Like, the images themselves were not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was like from a Kodak one megapixel camera. And I mean, there's only so much you can do with that. Yeah. But man, those prints, I look at them now, it's like, it, I, I can't do anything with them right. anymore. Like, right. it's just, they're, they're faded, they're destroyed. The paper was terrible to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so the cycle starts as to yeah. how we start to develop good printing tech. Um, mm. And I think that in... I'm going to say within the last decade is, is when it's really been viable yeah. for uh, photographers without having like a, a scientific degree in printing or an apprenticeship uh, in the art form can pick up the necessary tools and, and kind of dive in successfully with some experimentation. Of course, that costs mm. you money. And so mm. you have to em- embrace that. Uh, but it's it's a far easier thing to do now than I think it ever has been, especially with all the calibration tools and, and stuff like that on the market that just simplify the process considerably. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, y- your first prints, do you still have any of them? Or did you just look at them and say, no, that's just... The, the first ones that I made, um, I believe the first f- f- printer that I could have, I said that the the output I believed was, could be easily called fine art, was an old um, Epson I think it was a PM 4000 PX or something like that. I'm not sure if that was the same number used in the US uh, or Canada or wherever, everywhere else in the world. Um, but um, yeah, I do have some of those prints. I've got them. Um, I, I buy, uh, well, I've actually probably still got some in an old large clam set, clamshell box, a 13 by 19. Um, I haven't got them out in a long while, um, but I, I do have prints from that. They were good quality, and and at that time as well, we started to be, we started to see the fine art paper come out. Um, I was using a beautiful mat. I think it was their velvet velvet pro or something. You know, stick a pro on the end, and everyone buys it. Um, <laughs> but I, I I can't remember the exact name, but it was a really beautiful, smooth velvet um, fine art paper. And I mean, I, I I've got no worries at all about the longevity, especially they're sitting in a clam box, so. Um, there, there's going to be no problem there. Um, it would be interesting to pull some out and see what they look like, uh, just just to see the quality. Um, I actually, even on my blog, I've got some, because shortly after I started podcasting, I uh, I bought the the Canon, um, which one was it? One of, one of the earlier Canon um, A, A3 Plus printers. And I did some comparisons because um, I wanted to know, you know, I, I was... I was happy that, you know, Canon printers are relatively cheap or have been, um, but they, they've got different qualities. I, I find that the, the, and I found this basically from my earliest tests, um, but I found that the Epson printer was much more um, analog. The, the, the results looked more like a photograph. If you look at them with a, with a quite strong loop here, you, um, you, you get the, um, you can see, very fine gradations, and this is comparing my old Epson with my old Canon. Um, but the, you've got this really beautiful fine um, gradations, and the the dots were were you know, arranged in such a way that it looked more like looking into uh, a matte print uh, that was done with uh, with traditional methods. But the um, the Canon was much more digital. It was it was sharper. There was there were certain areas that that look better, but it was much more sort of crunchy. It was, it was more of like an engineer's print than a, than an artist's print initially. 
Um, but then I, I I moved to the IPF six three fifty, and uh, it, it all changed again. But yeah, it's been. I, I, it's, I, mm, oh no, yeah, no continue. On. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say I, I own the same uh, printer as you, except I had the um, uh, sixty three hundred, uh, which did not have the built in hard drive. Yeah, that was, yeah. I think the only difference between the two of them. That, and, that's all um, the only difference. I, I've since replaced it. I've now got the uh, the uh, eighty four hundred because uh, our old printers were twenty four inch printers. Mm. And they're not that expensive, to be honest. No, when I was looking no. into repairing it, I realized it would cost me less to buy a new one than it would be to replace this one because right. it was giving me an error saying that the voltage on the print heads was uh, inaccurate or something that, like that. You so know what? That is exactly what I've got right now. And, and then, and okay, so then I look into it further and I think, okay, well, that means that the main board needs to be replaced. It's like, okay, well, that's great because that's out of warranty. And mm. then it continued to print for another couple of days, uh, maybe a week at <laughs> exactly most. Exactly. And then it was giving me printhead errors. And I'm like, okay, well, that means that it's fried the printheads. Both printheads and the main board need to be replaced. I just, I'm going to buy a new one. And, you know, you uh, know what, that, that's exactly what's happened to me. Two weeks ago, I had a print order that came in and I tried to print it and I got the error. I unplugged it, plugged it back in, got it again, unplugged it, plugged it back in and it worked. And I was able to print the, the print job to send to ship to my customer. But then when I started to look into this rip again last week, it just, the same thing happened. And I thought, oh, great. So we're, you know, and I had Canon, the engineer came here on, um, I think it was Tuesday afternoon. And he said, okay, so the, the, the course of action is ten, change both print heads. That's going to cost you $900, uh, well, $800. He said, um, during that process, you're probably going to run out your maintenance cartridge. So that's another couple of hundred dollars. Um, it, it, it's got a 50% chance of fixing the issue. And if it doesn't, the next thing is the controller board. So he said, you're going to be looking at the cost of the printer by the time you're finished. So what do you want to do? So I'm like, okay, well, um, what do I do? Uh, yeah, and I'm actually, I'm, I've, had, I've asked him to, because we live in a, a three-story apartment and these things weigh a lot. Of, weigh a lot. Um, the, I didn't buy the 8400 when I moved here because it was too heavy. It's like 100K Well, when, when it was delivered, like two men had to carry it downstairs, partly disassembled and then reassemble it in place. And right. like, it's not something that I could have done myself. Well, well you, so that means you've got it in the basement, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the third floor. My, my oh, studio here is on the third floor of a wooden structure. Um, so I, I really can't have, well, this is what I'm asking them at the moment because what's happening is the next one that the next version of this printer that came out was the IPF six, four fifty or six, four hundred without the hard drive. And I, uh, I have, that's roughly the same machine. It's just a slightly new, newer generation but it's just been replaced. The IPF 2000 is just coming out and it's a beast. It's the same, even at the same 24 um, inch roll size, it's a hundred kilometers, uh, kilometers. <laughs> it's a hundred kilograms. So, you know, the, the printer itself is, is two is one and a half times heavier than the original. So I've got them at the moment trying to figure out if it, if I can actually put it in my studio on, in this, you know, on the third floor and, um, I mean, you think about it, it only weighs as much as me. I mean, I weigh about 20 kilograms more than I should. True. And if so, you're standing on one foot, your weight is in a tiny little point. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's not very evenly distributed and you're not breaking through the, the, the floor. So, yeah. So, so the thing is, is, I probably can have it installed, but the availability at the moment, I don't want to buy a 6450 at the moment if there's a new 2000 on the market, but, but the weight is definitely a concern for me. 
True, true. And, uh, and so when, when they delivered this, like, thankfully it, it's in the basement and, mm-hmm. uh, I, we, we just bought this house. We don't plan on moving for a very long time. And, uh, that printer is going to live its entire life in this house. I'm not going to move it. It's, mm. uh, it, it, it's going to be picked up by e-waste people or whatever when we're out of here because um, it's, it's a beast. It's a behemoth, but it's a 44-inch printer. Exactly. And so I've done some images. Uh, the biggest I've printed on that was a 70 by 40 on canvas. Nice. And uh, it just, it fills a wall. And yeah. there is something special about mm. looking at your work when it's just filling up an entire wall top to bottom and it's just like you, you take a step back and you say okay well now that print that image is done you yeah. know it, it, yeah. it's not done until it's really printed and a lot of people can enjoy it in many different ways mm. um but i'm a firm believer that if you've got that perfect image uh that you know it, it deserves some uh some wall space mm. yeah i I, can't, I couldn't agree more i think it's Actually, it, it's almost like the the print uh, is the conception, not 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 the print. The, the the actual exposure is the conception, and then you've got this whole gestation period on your computer. But and, until it's actually made into a physical artifact, a physical thing, it's not really born. It's it's as though you've got all of the rest. And this, of course, is probably making you want to think about your your new daughter at the moment. But um, you know what, though, because when my dad got that first digital camera, yeah. uh, he didn't have a backup strategy. I mean, yeah. nobody knew what data management was in a household of that era. We right. lost all of those digital prints. We they oh, just disappeared dear. into the ether when computers were upgraded and things were forgotten. And yeah. uh, but I still have those terrible, terrible prints that were made. <laughs> Uh, the prints will survive that. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm, Brilliant. Speaking of prints and printmaking, I'd like to mention and thank uh, the sponsor of this episode of Inside the Lens, Outdoor Photography Canada magazine. Uh, If you like the content of this podcast, then you'd probably also like my column in every issue of this magazine called Pushing Limits. And it's one of the few print publications that I recommend reading. Uh, I think what sets Outdoor Photography Canada apart from other photographic magazines is really the quality of the content. Uh, well, it's produced by Canadians. I think photography is a universal art that uh, that really knows no borders, and I think that anybody can explore this magazine. Uh, and my fellow contributors are top-notch. Uh, they cover relevant content. It's interesting. It's thought-provoking. Uh, and I think that there's a rare balance between great writing, excellent images, and of course, the, the necessary advertisements that come in magazines like this, but it really has a lot of content for everybody to enjoy. Uh, And if you haven't picked up a copy of Outdoor Photography Canada, now's the perfect time because I'd like to give you a special coupon code. Useful to anyone in Canada and the United States on one, two-year subscriptions, just use the code ITL on checkout and you'll get 20% off the regular subscription price. Uh, Head over to OutdoorPhotographyCanada.com or actually the shorter version is OPCMAG.com, OPCMAG.com and use the code ITL uh, and explore this excellent quarterly magazine. Uh, I'd like to thank again Outdoor Photography Canada for supporting this podcast and I hope that you'll use that code and stay inspired and learn more about photography on every level. So um, moving forward to, you had mentioned something earlier on about uh, the, the the different types of papers and uh, the experience that that can provide. I've got mm. rolls and rolls of some papers that I liked and I've bought more of some that I didn't and now they're just collecting dust. Mm. Um, but man, that is a creative uh, endeavor 
you know, just, just the same as best, choosing yeah. which lens you're going to use to take the picture. Yeah. Choosing which paper that you use uh, down the road is uh, is going to be a, a fun bit too. Uh, and you don't have much of a choice if you're letting another lab do it. They might give you two or three options. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of companies out there and each company that produces uh, papers and canvases and what have you, they've got like 30 or 40 different products in their lineup and all sorts of different sizes. Mm. Um, I'm partial to uh, Mule's Burrita papers, um, mm. which uh, are like all cotton and they have a really nice finish to them. Uh, Breathing Color makes some very, very nice canvas. And I know that you've used their canvases as well. Mm. Uh, in fact, I've used some of their, uh, their luster photo paper recently mm. too. Mm. Uh, and then there's metallic printing and even metallic canvas. Yeah. Uh, and- you know, metallic canvas is, is off the charts. Um, I've got a, a photo to my right here on the wall of uh, a, of Landman Alauga in um, in Iceland, and it's done on breathing colours Silverado metallic canvas, and it's just the the dynamic range, you know, the the um, the the amount, the range of colours and the depth, and you know, the the deepest to the brightest colour that you can print on this on this canvas is is incredible. When you soft proof it, um, you can you can have the the gamut warnings all over the screen for one photo, switch the profile to this Silverado and they all just disappear. Okay. So let's touch on soft proofing then. Um, Because what you see on your computer screen can never be what a printer outputs. Um, They they can be close, but Mm. uh, this soft proofing process, which you can do very easily in Lightroom, there's a little checkbox for soft proofing. Um, Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't used it that much. Mm. Um, What this does is it will allow you to load up the the printer paper profile uh, that, say, if you've calibrated it and so that you've uh, you've got the the ICC profile on your computer, the calibrator knows what colors that printer on that paper is capable of producing and which ones it is not capable of producing. So uh, that's the gamut overall. And uh, just like on a... um, uh, a regular picture when you're trying to see where your highlights and your shadows are clipped, um, mm. then you can see gamut clipping where it will alert you in red, I believe, um, yeah. what colors that you're currently seeing on the screen cannot be accurately reproduced on the print. And yeah. this is this is useful because uh, if you can see that, then you can control how you can shift those colors around mm. so that you can reliably now find a compare uh, comparison between what the printer will do versus what you're seeing on the screen instead of it just like kind of guessing what the nearest neighbor color or brightness is going to be and just doing that and you have no control over it. Is right. that accurate? It is. Um, the, the, the thing that I thought we, we could add to that as you, as you spoke there was that it also, the, the profile also has paper color information. Um, it knows the quality of, of the surface of the paper. So there's a checkbox in Lightroom as well where you can simulate paper. Um, I, I, think, I don't know if it's called just simulate paper. Um, paper. Simulate paper and ink, I think it says. And if you check that on, it, the image changes again because it's actually showing you it, what the profile knows about the paper and the, the quality of the inks. Right. And it's so, not going to show you if you're using a watercolor paper. It's not going to apply that texture to it. But no, it would. But, but the look, uh, the reflectivity it would give you the, and everything. Especially if you're using a matte paper. 
right? Yeah, Versus a glossy exactly. paper. It will emulate the kind of blacks that a matte paper is going to produce, which are mm. duller than uh, the deep blacks on a glossy paper. And that's and really it also, helpful to see. It, it also knows about the color of the paper as well, though. So, right. So, so you, like, I've got, um, I, I was just calibrating this to some of the uh, Hana Mule stuff uh, from, uh, that I was just doing some prints on earlier. And it mm. is a slightly warm color. Yeah. You know, I don't use this for everything, but I love it for my landscape uh, imagery. Mm. And, yeah. uh, so when I was dealing with that, the interesting thing is, and I know we're not recording the video here, Martin, but you might get a, a fun kick out of this, this standard test chart from an X-Rite uh, color monkey mm. made me scratch my head because I should not have three white patches. Mm. They should look a little bit more like this, where some of these patches are pink yeah. or, or yeah. magenta. And I, I saw that test chart and I'm like, Som something's wrong here. Mm. Uh, mm. and so then I scan it through and the next one was like, because it'll generate a second uh, a second chart when you're calibrating, mm. and the next one was like all crazy pinks and stuff, and some something it's seriously, to generate seriously a pink, wrong. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so then I went back, and yeah, uh, one of my um, print heads was clogged, and yeah. the photo magenta ink was not coming out. Wow. And and so I did a cleaning and figured it all out, and, and away we go. And yeah. uh, so now it's calibrated properly. But the yeah. calibration process told me that. I yeah. looked at it and I said to myself, yeah, some, something's not right here. It's It's got to be, uh, I, I'm i crossing my fingers and saying, please don't need to replace a print. Please, not right now. Uh, and the yeah. cleaning fixed it. But yeah. I, I, the, the uh, Silverada uh, from Breathing Color, that canvas, I've got a 44-inch roll of it. I'm just about to run it through the printer and do mm. my first tests. I've got a big art show coming up next week and I'm producing yeah. some extra canvases for it. You, you will um, be impressed, I assure you. It's beautiful. I'm, I, I hope I will be. Uh, I tried the Hana Mule um, uh, metallic canvas before, and I was disappointed mm. because um, the the print right as soon as it would come out, it mm. had cracks in the dark colors, mm. and I'm like, that just seems weird. Um, mm. And then when I tried to put the coating on it, I know that they say you don't need to put a coating onto the metallic canvases, but I like to anyhow. Um, mm. All of the colors just washed away in the fluid. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's, this <laughs> that's is not going to work for me. Uh, so that, that test roll is garbage. And I'm hoping uh, that, the, uh, that the breathing color stuff behaves a lot better. You know, you, you're printing with the same inks that I'm using. Um, if you get any problems with it at all, then it's a problem with the process rather than the material. I mean, you could have a duff batch, but I doubt it. Did um, you uh, did you coat that canvas? Do you coat your metallic canvas? I don't coat it. No, I, right. the only canvas that I coat is live. Um, again, from, from breathing color. Um, mm -hmm. but the rest of them, I don't, um, and they're, they're very durable. You know, once these things have dried, you can't scratch them anyway. So I, uh, I don't coat them. Um, yeah. I'm trying to recall, there was one other thing we were talking earlier. Oh yeah. So when we were talking earlier about soft proofing, um, you, you mentioned the gamut warning, um, which like you say, it shows you in red, um, I was going to mention a couple of things about what to do when you do get those gamut warnings. Please um, do. So there's, there's a couple of things that I do. One is totally ignore them um, because <laughs> sometimes there's absolutely the, – the, the difference is so subtle that the human eye can't tell the difference and the printer actually has a pretty good uh, chance of reproducing them so close that you can't tell. The other thing that I sometimes do is to go down into the um, the HSL box, select the saturation, select the little um, the color picker thing there, drop it on the colors that are showing red, and then move it down slightly to reduce the saturation. 
and you can often watch the uh, and sometimes even increasing the saturation does the same thing. It just it just moves them out of the area that can't be reproduced, and you watch all of the reds disappear. Um, that's generally what I do. Um, but the other thing to to keep in mind there is that the uh, the rendering intent that you will you can change it in the soft proofing mode as well. Um, but also when you go to send the job to the printer, the rendering intent, um, if you use perceptual, and um, this isn't the, the wording is actually a little bit weird here, but perceptual. I'm glad you're getting into this. So what is the difference <laughs> between uh, perceptual and um, relative color Rel- metric, I think is another one? Yeah, exactly. So they're the two that you generally use for, for photographic prints. So uh, perceptual, when it, when it has to change, when, when the printer driver has to move a color from something that's out of gamut to the closest color that's in gamut, if you use perceptual, it will actually move the, the colors close to the one that it can't print. Um, it will move them in relation to the, to the ones that it, that it can print. Um, and so you, it maintains the fine gradations. It moves, it moves not only the colors that it can't print, but it moves the ones that it can print to, to maintain the relationship. And so you've got this relationship word in, in your mind. But the conversely, relative colorimetric, what that does is it only moves the, the colors that it cannot print. And so it doesn't try to maintain the relationship between the, um, the, percep- the perceptual um, and the, uh, sorry, between the, the colors that it can print and it can't print. So you can end up with some nasty gradations, some steps in there that you, uh, that you didn't expect. So generally, ninety-nine percent of the time, you, you're going to want to be using perceptual um, perceptual as the, the rendering intent. Right, and it's important to know too if you're doing your own printing. Uh, if we're talking about color uh, gradations, um, you have the ability of, if you're shooting raw. Um, that the uh, the final files that you should be storing on your computer. I always have a master copy of my images as as a TIFF mm. file uh, because that's sixteen bit. And what that means is, of course, you have far higher color accuracy. And I remember uh, this was many years ago, but I was I was working while in college at a uh, at a print shop, and uh, I had this wonderful picture of a uh, of an island uh, with a very slight gradation of blue in the sky, from like a mm. light blue to an ever so slightly different kind of light blue across mm. across the sky. Um, and I uh, I sent it out uh, to uh, uh, to the uh, the out lab because we couldn't print it quite that big uh, in, mm. in store, and it came back with a bunch of jaggy lines all throughout mm. the sky, mm. and I'm scratching my head thinking, really? I mean, <laughs> I pull up the master TIFF file on the computer again, and I look at it, and I'm not seeing that, and mm. I send it to them. They were converting it to a JPEG, which was eight bit. and then printing it and so i lost the the color information in that sky and there was no way that they could have produced the print that i wanted unless i specifically went in and edited the sky to have more of a gradation or less of one Mm. uh and that was not something that i wanted to do and so that's that's at the very beginnings of when i thought okay well now maybe i should take some control uh, on the printing side of stuff and get results that I'm after. So if you mm. are doing your own printing or if you're going to a, a boutique printer uh, that knows all of the stuff that we're talking about, they'll be able to print a 16-bit file, no problem. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I, I was disappointed. I sent it back and they sent me another one that was identical. I was like, okay, well, <laughs> this this is not working. Um, yeah. Something's lost in the communication here. Yeah. So with these prints, uh, yeah. and, and the, the next topic is, is a fun one. Um, once you have that on the wall, 
uh, lighting is important. And mm. I know some people go crazy with l properly lighting prints or any kind of artwork on the wall. Uh, mm. You can like have a halogen light pointed at it with barn doors that close the light in on the top and the bottom so that it's mm. only hitting the print and makes it glow off the wall. You can do some fantastic stuff that way. Mm. Um, and the worst case scenario is uh, lighting it under like fluorescent lighting. Compact fluorescents are the worst. Um, artificial lighting comes in a lot of different qualities. Uh, mm. And it's really important to understand how these qualities affect your work. Portrait uh, photographers or commercial photographers, product photographers um, that are actually taking pictures in certain quality of light, um, then of course it matters to them. I'm usually doing a lot of my work outdoors as I know you are as well, Martin. Mm. Um, and so the quality of the light is whatever the atmosphere and environment is giving me. But when I'm showing off my prints, um, if the quality of light is poor, the print is going to look pretty poor there as mm. well. Uh, have you done any research into this? Um, I, only a little. I I know um, there's there's a few things like, for example, when I I did my first pixels to pigment workshop at the uh, Xrite Japan office, uh, they they had a, a photo viewing cabinet there, like a it, basically it it puts out exactly um 5000 kelvin light um so it's it's like the the smack in the middle of the spectrum um and they they sell these i mean i've seen them online uh they they're 2 3000 dollars um a lot of those use 5000k um i know that gallery lighting is usually 2 uh, 3200 which is slightly warmer light um it i i think it the the other thing, of course, that, that you're probably thinking about here is the is the the spectrum of light that these um, any given both um, of these come into play at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I know what considerations there are, um, and I I know a lot of the the common sort of thoughts around this. But honestly, in my own daily life, I all I did was I have ceiling lights. I don't have a gallery. I've got photos on the, behind me at the moment. Um, but I just have LED lights that I can change the color of. So I can make it change from a very blue light to a very orange light with a very neutral light in the middle. Um, so that's that's my answer. I, I don't necessarily have, I don't have one of these viewing cabinets because I don't have $3,000 to spare just to, <laughs> just to look at the photos. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I can talk about this stuff, but I haven't actually implemented very much of it at all. So I, I've done some research into this, so mm. I can carry part of this conversation forward. Um, the human brain does weird stuff with color. I mean, we, we know Absolutely. that in so many ways because, you know, yeah. there are certain colors that our brain sees that don't actually exist. You know, one mm. of them is magenta. Uh, mm. In fact, that's pretty much the only real one that we make up in our heads, um, which is the overlap of input from both red and violet at the same time. Our brain interprets that as magenta, uh, which is interesting because then, a printer has to create an invisible color, uh, which uh, good on you engineers for figuring all that stuff out. But the point is that we do strange things and, and we'll see uh, in an earlier podcast, I had um, Ray Maxwell on and we talked a lot about color science. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we see two different colors at the same time, our brain kind of combines them together and we don't mm -hmm. see uh, those two. We see the average of them uh, mm -hmm. and not really averages in the way that we think of it, um, but we don't see the same thing. And so if you can find out the proper mix of, of spectrum with giant gaps in between, we can see that as white light. Mm. And uh, that's what compact fluorescent bulbs do. 
So mm. they give us what we look at and see as white light, but it's missing about half of the color spectrum. So if you have a a particular shade of orange uh, in, you say, the picture uh, behind you or in a sunset picture or anything like that, um, Mm. and you light that with a compact fluorescent bulb, the color that should be reflecting off of the print isn't Mm. being emitted from the light source. So that color will be either darker or brighter, uh, depending on the balance, uh, or maybe it'll be slightly skewed. It might be a different color. Uh, mm. And so c- getting good light is mm. is a huge challenge. Compact fluorescents are the worst. If anybody has them in their house and they're listening to this and those lights are hitting pictures, just get rid of them. Just replace them with LED bulbs. Mm. LEDs, and I've done some some tests with this, they do give off a, a pretty a pretty clean spectrum. They, they uh, they're, very, they're very nice. Uh, yeah. And they're getting better. It's, it's the one area of lighting that is constantly improving. And, mm. uh, and so you, you look at that and you think, okay, they're... they're relatively energy efficient. I think they're probably the most energy efficient bulb uh, that, that you can get um, at uh, at the moderate and, and high brightnesses. But mm. um, the gold standard, I think, is still halogen bulbs. That's what galleries will use. And uh, and they they get hot. Um, like the, the light mm. fixture in my office is designed for halogen bulbs, but it was just mm. getting too hot in this room. I ended yeah. up just replacing them with LEDs mm. uh, as, a, as a point of convenience to me. Yeah. You know, a lot of galleries and museums are changing to LED as well now. Um, there's a there's a lot of white papers that they're putting together showing the price, the the cost imp- um, savings. You know, because if when you're talking hundreds of halogen bulbs, um, they're at they're, sixty to seventy watts a piece. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I, LED bulbs are still relatively expensive, but the they only use like a tenth or a or a fifteenth of the power. So true, and and because yeah. the halogen bulbs, all that energy. Yeah, with the same light output, I mean, that's going to heat. And so you're yeah. heating up the gallery. And then, of course, you've got to pay the air conditioning bill after that. Exactly. It seems like a whole self-defeating cycle. Yeah. Um, but it's all about the quality, right? Once the quality exactly. gets there, then the galleries are, are happy with it. And yeah. so uh, when we're you know dealing with the whole print scenario, uh, I, I was doing artwork reproductions for a painter uh, mm-hmm. and I had the light set up. I had my um, uh, X-Rite uh, uh, color checker passport to take mm-hmm. uh, a picture of that in front of every painting uh, as we went. So I would have a reference to adjust the colors. I made it perfectly color balanced mm-hmm. and he didn't like it because... Yeah. The uh, the color temperature of the lights that I was using uh, were slightly different than the color temperature of the lights he used to paint them. Uh-huh. And because <laughs> I, I, I didn't have access to those lights, it's like, okay, well, now I just have to sit down with you and manually fine tune the colors of these until they look like you painted them. Uh, mm-hmm. and there was a series of around 30 paintings that we had done uh, that way. Wow. And it was, it was a big job, uh, but it just kind of goes to show me. It's like, you know, I planned this so well. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried so hard to, to, to get this as accurate as I could. Mm. Um, but the intention of the artist always uh, comes in at the end. Now, of course, yeah. as photographers, uh, our intention is going to be in the editing process, the colors that yeah. we want to be producing and the colors that we maybe remembered in the scene that we're trying to, uh, to, to recreate. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it, 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 it's a fun cycle. And it's one that I... I keep thinking, okay, well, how are they going to innovate this farther? Uh, what What is going to be the next big thing in in printing? And uh, I I heard some rumblings. I don't know if it was a patent uh, that was applied for or an actual proof of concept product. Um, but Canon has produced a printer that will print uh, volumetrically. 
that will actually print an image but can print in depth uh, mm. on, uh, on, on a substrate. And uh, I thought that was a really neat idea. Wow. Uh, it's like, yeah. well, 3D printing for creating a 3D object, but what if you don't want to create a 3D object? What if you want to yeah. print a texture onto an image? Yeah, yeah, wow. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it's a fun world to be in as, as a visual oh, artist. Is. because It's a great time, yeah. It is, and, uh, you know, the, the newer, larger printer that I bought, uh, like a month after they announced a new version of it. Uh, so mm. I'm, I'm right with you there, but I'm happy with <laughs> what I, the only uh, real advantage of the new one is it has that extra gloss cartridge to put that substrate on top. Uh, yeah. And so mine, unfortunately, doesn't have it. But I do a lot of canvas, so I'm putting my own coatings yeah. on it anyhow. Well, you know, I mean, I, th that's one one good point there because I, if I could cheaply fix my IPF six three fifty, I'd continue using it. I'm I. It's one piece of camera related gear that I don't feel the need to upgrade with every every new release. Um, because the the quality is great, and the new the new versions. I mean, if it's still got only got twelve colors, like you say, I mean, this the new one's got the got the emulsions that that, that it, to put out, but it's it's not it's not going to be. Um, I don't expect it's going to be a hell of a lot better. Um, so you can be happy with your gear for longer than you normally would with with other with other camera gear that keeps getting updated on relatively short cycles. Oh yeah, you know, and I, I'm looking at. Uh... Uh, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. Uh, they actually came out with a non ethernet version of the, um, IPF 8400, um, that, uh, is now only $3,000 US. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that's not a lot of money, but, no. but you know, the, the thing is, is with, with these though, it's like the print, the, um, the razor blade, uh, the razor and the razor blade market. You know, you can buy a Gillette where you, you buy the, the razor and the first two or three blades for like uh, for for a couple of dollars but then they're going to charge you a ridiculous amount for the blades every time you need to need to change them and it's the same with inks they the the canon man the canon the printer manufacturers sell the printer at a relatively low low cost uh, you know what at that price for the weight and the construction of it mm. they're they're probably losing money on every printer it wouldn't sale. surprise me but when you consider that and this is a fact the um especially for smaller printers that have the tiny cartridges that have got like three drops of ink in them, the, it's actually more expensive than gold. The, to, you know, gram for gram, printer ink is, is often um, more expensive than gold. But the, the good thing about these big printers is, is that you can, you can you know, the, the cartridges are big. It cost me over $1,000 to fill this printer up, though. Well, yeah, um, but how much can you print with that? I mean, exactly. It, I mean, ten thousand dollars is going to uh, well pay for itself if you're doing client work with all of it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, and it, it is a lot more efficient because it's not. It's definitely not more expensive than gold in these big printers. Um, but that's one of the one of the improvement of the um, the IPF two thousand that I'm looking at the new the new ones that are just coming out because these are, these can actually take varying size cart cartridges. They can take, um, I think mine are 360 or 320, something like that. And it, it, I think it's 360. Um, they can take a smaller cartridge and they can also take the 700-something milliliter cartridge. Yeah, I've got, I've got some so, of the 700s. Now, for one of those cartridges, it costs me over $200, you know, times exactly. 12. You yeah, know, yeah. but at, at the end of the day, I can print hundreds and hundreds of very big prints yeah. Uh, on that and yeah. uh, so yeah they, it's much you, more efficient now for the smaller printers of course that's why there's there's a market for aftermarket ink cartridges um i don't think that market exists for the big guys and i wouldn't even want to explore that because uh Me neither. 
Yeah, you don't want to damage it. You just don't don't want to yeah. take the chance. And of course, the printer manufacturers know that, and so they got mm. you. Um, it's interesting though because uh, we're talking about you know print heads and replacing them and and all that. A fellow photographer and and printer uh, in my area, uh, I was sitting down for coffee with him recently, and uh, and he said, you know, I had an Epson printer, and I'm not sure if this is still the case. It was at the time, uh, mm. and the print head was not user serviceable, not user replaceable. You mm. would have to get a tech to come in and <laughs> replace it, but. Mm. Epson in Canada, uh, here where I am, they don't actually have a Canadian presence, so they kind of outsource the uh, the tech support, and mm. they typically deal with like the big high volume printers, not the smaller guys. And mm. so he was going to be waiting around for like I don't know four or five weeks before somebody could get to him uh, mm. to to do uh, an in service uh, replacement on the ink tanks, and so he just said, okay, that printer's going in the trash, and got a Canon one instead. Um, now that's not to say the Canon ones aren't without problems as we've both experienced the exact same problem on the exact same model of printer after about the exact same amount of time. That seems slightly suspicious. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like the Sony timer. There's an urban myth over here that Sony build a timer into their TVs that breaks them exactly two weeks after the warranty runs out. And if you extend the warranty, it knows somehow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I actually, I've actually run into this. We we had a Sony TV. I extended the warranty by three years, I think it was, or two, th- uh, two three years. Um, so it should have been a one year. I paid a little extra to get a three year warranty, and it broke three years and two weeks after we after we bought it. And I, I'm not, I kid you not, um, it was ridiculous. And we we went back. We bought a new t- a new Sony TV last year um, after having a few different TVs because I said I'd never buy another Sony. And the, the Sony guy in the store assured me that this is not true. And I knew I was tongue in cheek. I was asking him about the Sony timer. Um, but yeah, they, they, it's strange how a lot of these um, appliances that we buy now, I mean, TVs years ago, they used to last 20, 30 years. You know, the first, the first few TV sets, they were chugging along for decades. And now everything, because it's, I think it's because it's printed on these tiny circuit boards and things. Um, you know, the, the, the technology has come a long way and, and, you know, we're all benefiting from that, but there's also a lot of fragility being built into them as well. You know, well, having something like this break okay. after such a short time. I, I have a fun thought here, uh, and and maybe you'll have some experience with it. Uh, do you, uh, you're a, a Canon shooter, right? Yeah. Do you have the 24 to 105 lens? Um, I used to. I sold it a number of years ago. Okay. But, um, yeah. I, I've had that lens uh, after three years. I was shooting in Istanbul, and mm. it uh, it fell apart on me. Um, it just started giving me error codes, um, saying that it can't communicate with the, the camera, can't communicate with the lens. Mm. And so I looked up, um, there's a small little ribbon cable inside mm. the lens that moves with the aperture assembly as you zoom the lens in and out. And in mm. one point inside the lens, that cable gets pinched a little bit and mm. it'll keep working fine for about three years. Uh, but after three years of constant use, of course, outside the warranty period, it will break. Uh, and they don't just sell that cable. You have to buy the mm. entire aperture assembly uh, in order to do the repair. So it's a multiple hundred dollar repair on that particular lens. Now, that's cheaper than buying the lens. So I get it repaired. Three years later, which was two months ago, yeah. that lens breaks broke, exactly yeah. the same way. Uh, wow. It'll function at 24 millimeters. But as soon as you zoom out, uh, it uh, it does that. And I'm like, okay, this, this is a design flaw. And I talked to Canon about it. And uh, they admit no wrongdoing. There is no service notice. So you have to pay the repair bill, sir. Exactly. Uh, and I'm like, ah, but yeah. 
the new version yeah. of this lens is coming out soon. It's rumored to be announced in August. Uh, and I'm thinking, yeah, uh, do I really want to pay the bill? And I did. Yeah. And in three years, I'm going to have a broken lens again. I, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you just, you, you know, have, I, you have to live with it. Yeah. I, I didn't know that the, that the new one was actually rumored with a time frame, but I'm, I'm waiting for the, I'm, I'm currently shooting since, since a few of the, the newer lenses came out, like the, the new 100 to 400, um, I'm currently shooting with the 11 to 24, the 20, 24 to 72, eight, and then the 100 to 400. And I'm thinking that, you know, these days I'll keep the, I'll keep the 70 to 20, the 24 to 72, eight for the extra stop of light and the extra, you know, the shallow, shallow depth of field. But I'm, I'm really waiting for the new 24 to 105 because then I'll have no gap between 70 and 300 and 70 and 100. So I'll be able to travel with three lenses and be, and have every, millimeter covered from 11 to 400. Of course, so I was that, I, I was doing trick photography uh, along my travels. You know, I, I wanted to pack lights. So, and uh, like you said, bring three lenses, but mm. I like macro photography to the extreme. So I packed yeah. in my MPE 65 millimeter macro lens that can't do yeah. anything else but macro photography. And I packed <laughs> in my fisheye lens, my 15 millimeter fisheye lens that mm. is great for showing those beautiful cathedral architectures. Mm. Uh, mm. But for not much else. Um, yeah. And then my 24 to 105, which breaks. Once that's gone, I've got nothing to, like, it's, uh, it was a nightmare. Um, so, uh, but we, we find ourselves in interesting situations as photographers. We always find our way out of it. Uh, and maybe mm. we'll have you on to talk about some more of those adventures at some point in the future, Martin. Uh, yeah. I think this chat was great about printing. But the only thing yeah. that I might want to wrap up and say um, is that, you know, once you dive into printing, like once you have like tried to like create your own print, it's not the same magical feeling as it would have been in the dark room where you just see the image come to life on the paper in front of you. Um, that moment, I don't think that digital world of printing can reproduce. Um, mm. But when you hold up a, a well done print uh, in a room and it's just like beautifully lit, it is so much more powerful than it ever would have been on your computer screen. Mm. Uh, mm. And so few photographers today are actually doing that, regardless of if they're printing it themselves. Mm. Uh, so print your work, people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I couldn't I couldn't say that any better. But I, I I really do believe that printing is is the it it's maybe not the ultimate um, state of the of the image. You know, you can we can do so much with our work these days, but it's incredibly fulfilling. And I think that people are missing out on a huge part of the craft and the art of photography if you, if you don't print your work. Right. Well, we'll leave it at that, Martin. Thank you so much for this conversation. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Don. I really want to thank Martin for coming on the podcast. I think the conversation was wonderful. Uh, we left off two things when I was still talking with Martin. One of them is where you can find him. Um, so Martin Bailey is uh, is found at martinbaileyphotography.com. And, uh, and you can find out all of his photographic workshops, which are fantastic, by the way. I think he's got one coming up to Namib Namibia next year. And I'm very envious of him and everybody that's going to be on that workshop. Um, and uh, we didn't talk about something very important, too. And that was optical brightening agents in paper, OBAs, and, uh, and why you should be concerned with them uh, with the kind of paper that you're using and how they affect the paper uh, under different lighting conditions and over time. Uh, maybe we'll save that for an another discussion uh, on choosing the right paper type and everything that's involved within that. Uh, I think that'd be a great follow-up talk with Martin or maybe even get another expert on uh, as well to cover that off. But 
If you like this podcast, feel free to let me know. Send me an email uh, if you have any ideas for guests to bring on. Uh, I'm always looking for new scientific minds that are interested in photography to have a conversation with on this podcast. Thanks again for listening.